the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Correction is an important aspect of love. You as parents understand this. If you just let your children do whatever they want, they can bring harm to themselves. They can destroy themselves. They could die, frankly. So there are some loving ways that parents have to interfere and correct and admonish. And there are sometimes, and here's what people don't understand about the loving character of God. There are sometimes consequences to our sins and correction from a loving father in order to help us to be corrected, to get back on the right path. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Kings. There are many misconceptions when it comes to the loving nature of God and why He allows tragedy to occur in the lives of His people. While some might say God's love is passive and dismissive of sin, the Bible teaches that God chastens those who He loves. In today's message, Pastor Gary helps us gain a better understanding of what God's love for us looks like as children and heirs of His kingdom. In our study, we learn that just as we would discipline and teach our own children, God uses corrective measures to get us back on track. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part two of today's message, Warnings from a Just and Patient God. The king of Assyria says, we got to send one of these priests we've taken captive. we got to send him back there to the land of Israel so that he can teach the people how to worship so that they won't be eaten by lions. Not the best motivation, right? I'm going to worship God so I'm not eaten by a lion. But anyway, the priest goes back to teach them how to worship. Please make note, this is not a legitimate priest. The reason we know this is because there weren't any legitimate priests in the northern kingdom of Israel. The only legitimate priests were of the tribe of Levi... And the Levites served as priests in the temple of the Lord. Where was the temple of the Lord? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was part of the southern kingdom of Judah. There were no legitimate priests to the north. These were pseudo-priests who just decided to become priests. And so when he sends one of these priests back, he's not a legitimate priest, so he doesn't really teach them legitimate worship. And as a result, we find a very convoluted form of worship. Look here further in our study. Verse 32. Verse 32 says that they worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. So 
you know, if you don't have a legitimate priest to teach you how to worship, you're not going to really learn how to do it right. And what's their form of worship? We're going to worship God. We're going to do the sacred thing. But we're also going to do the secular thing. We're going to worship our own gods also in addition to worshiping the true and living God. But you can't do that. There's only one God to be worshipped, and there is no other God. And so you have this admixture here. It's a very brackish form of worship. It's not fresh water. It's not salt water. It's just kind of this mixture here where we're going to worship God, and we're going to worship also the secular things, and we're going to kind of bring it together in this convoluted mess. And let me tell you something. Sadly but truthfully, this convoluted brackish worship is still happening in some churches today where you have a mixture of the sacred and the secular. And I'm not making this kind of thing up, but it just always, you know, surprises me. And I suppose the longer I hear about these things, the less surprised I should be. But so my oldest son, Tyler, was recently at another church where somebody we knew was going to be a guest speaker. At the end of the service, the music on the way out was Will Smith getting jiggy with it. I'm not making that up. Now, listen, you know, I like Will Smith, great actor. Fun, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I get that. I guarantee you Carlton wouldn't like this idea. Let me tell you something. Getting jiggy with it in church, is that appropriate? No, 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 no. Listen to me. <laughs> On a serious note, I remember one time Barbara Walters asked Will Smith, what, what does getting jiggy with it mean, Will? And he said, Barbara, you don't want to know. But anyway, that's the kind of thing. We have that going, what, seriously? That's happening, that kind of admixture? Now, listen. On a side note, and this is not the main point of the Bible study, but even though this is not a legitimate priest and, and they're not legitimately worshiping the Lord, I remember when I had to learn how to worship the Lord. Now, what do I mean by that? Because I want to clarify this. I believe that true, and when we say worship, let me just qualify this first of all. Obviously, not all worship is just singing in church. Worship is a lifestyle, okay? It's how you live and how you honor the Lord. But it also includes singing in church. In addition, I want to qualify it by saying this, that true worship emanates out of the overflow of a heart that has a relationship with Jesus. Okay? Nobody really has to teach you how to worship. Okay? Nobody really has to teach you. Any more than somebody has to teach you how to cheer for your favorite team. It just happens. When you go to the stadium, it happens. Okay? When you come to church, speaking specifically now about worship and singing, nobody really has to teach you. As you know Christ, you just want to begin to worship Him out of an overflow of the heart. But I can remember when I first got saved. And I grew up in a pretty uh, mainline traditional church. Nothing wrong with mainline traditional churches. I'm just saying that's all that I was exposed to at that point. I got saved when I was 15. So before that, all I really knew was you sing a hymn on the way in, a hymn when they shake you down to take the offering, and a hymn on the way out. Okay? So you're singing when you come in, when you're shaking down, when you're walking out. That's the way we did it. And we had a few creeds we recited in the middle of all that. Okay? So my first time going to a church that had modern worship, what? Was just a shell-shocking experience for me. Because I, I, remember, I remember being at a church service, uh, you know, where I had gone with some of my friends and they had like modern worship worship team. Like, what's this? A keyboard? What? <laughs> Guitars? Drums? Hello? Hot pockets? You know, and I'm just kind of like, I'm looking at this and I'm just like becoming like, what in the world is happening here? And then, and then as, as the worship is getting to go and now I've got people all around me like, why do they have questions about they all got their hands up in the air. 
what's all the questions about? And I can remember myself in the middle of the worship, I, a halfway through, I'm thinking like, okay, I got a few questions too myself. <laughs> like, how many times are we going to keep singing this chorus over and over again? Okay? This is the air I breathe. I get it. Can we move on? <laughs> so I remember having to learn some things about worship, Okay? And I can tell you the main thing about worship in terms of singing in church that I had to learn was to drop the pride and stop being so self-conscious. That it is okay to actually get excited about the team that you're on. And that team is Jesus. So worship Him. Listen, Psalm 134 verse 2 says, Lift your hands in the sanctuary of the Lord and praise the Lord. It's okay to have the liberty to do that. Now, we're not going to prescribe that here. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to have ushers walking up and down the aisle. Time to lift your arms. Lift your arms. Okay? Because, again, that has to come from the overflow. But, but you have the liberty. Even though for some of you, like it was for me years ago, it's a little weird. It's a little, now, you know, look, there's, there's another spectrum, too, where some of you who have come from churches that are a little more wild have come in here going, this is dull. You know, so every, everybody's perspective is a little bit different. I'm convinced, okay, because worship becomes a very passionate thing, a very subjective thing that people are very, you know, they're very concerned. This is the we only way. Is it new songs, old songs? Is it, is it the hymns? Is it the choruses? Is it fast? Is it slow? Here's what I'm convinced about. I'm convinced that God likes all kinds and all forms of songs and worship and singing as long as it has the right lyrics to express the right message and it comes from the right heart. So as long as it has the right lyrics and we have the right heart, I think God accepts and receives all kinds of worship, even for those of you who can't carry a tune in a bucket. (laughs) Because he just has the ear where he loves. I mean, the Bible does say, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And some of you make a joyful noise unto the Lord. But but he he can sift through all that and he delights in our worship. So praise God for all of it. Now, that's not the main point. I want to get back on track here. Here's the main question in our story here. How did Israel get in this mess? How did they get in this mess when the entire kingdom to the north now is gone? And here's another question that corresponds to that. What do we learn about God in this story? Because let me tell you something. You can read a story like that, and you can typically have the kind of misconceptions about God that I hear from people who don't really know Him. And there's nothing worse, you know, that when somebody doesn't really know you, and they have a a wrong misconception about you until they get to know you. And that's the way it is in the world concerning God. Now, God doesn't need me to defend them, okay? God's God's a big God. But I'm just saying in general, you know, as, as, as I interact and as you interact with people that you know who don't know the Lord in a personal way, there are a lot of misperceptions of who God is. And it's important for us to understand this story from that perspective. How did Israel get in this mess, and what did we learn about God? First answer we have to how did Israel get in this mess is given to us right there in verses 7 and 8. Would you look again at your chapter, verses 7 and 8? And it tells us clearly, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. So, so those verses right there tell us, how did Israel get in the mess? They just were in rebellion against God. They had sinned against the Lord. Now, what role did God play in this? Because you could look at this story and say, you know, why didn't God intervene to rescue his people here? And what we actually learn is that God allowed the Assyrians to come. Read further in the chapter, verse 18. 
Verse 18. So, because of Israel's sin, so the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. That's the kingdom to the south. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. This is hard stuff here. Because what we learn is that God is the righteous judge and he is allowing Assyria to be the rod of his discipline, to bring correction to the people whom he loves. Now, right there, for some of you, you were like, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like a very loving God. You know, that, that you would say that, Pastor, Pastor Gary, because a God who would allow his own people to be subjugated to a foreign empire with hooks in their jaws, hauled off like animals, and then the foreign people brought into the land to overtake their own homes, doesn't sound like a very loving God to me. Now, here's where we need to understand the true identity of the character and nature of God a little bit from this story, okay? There's this misperception in the world that God is unfair, that he's unjust. And this kind of thing feeds that misperception. Look at what he does here. He thrusts them from his presence. He allowed this kind of thing. Let me tell you why some people have a hard time understanding the God of love as a God of correction. Because a modern definition for God's love goes something like this. It's inaccurate, but this is how it somewhat goes. God is a loving God who accepts me in every way, loves me in every way, and never interferes with me in any way. It's kind of this just all-encompassing God who just accepts and, and loves and never interferes. And look, there's some truth into that, all right? God is an all-loving God, and He loves us completely and unconditionally. But a loving God is also a God of correction. Correction is an important aspect of love. You as parents understand this. If you just let your children do whatever they want... They can bring harm to themselves. They can destroy themselves. They could die, frankly. So there are some loving ways that parents have to interfere and correct and admonish. And there are sometimes, and here's what people don't understand about the loving character of God. There are sometimes consequences to our sins and correction from a loving father in order to help us to be corrected, to get back on the right path. This goes hand in hand with who the character of God really is. Some people don't want to acknowledge the correction of God because therefore then it infringes on their lifestyle that they don't want to be accountable to a holy God. So then they imagine, they, they, they make out of their own mind, out of fantasies, the idea that God is a God who simply accepts everything I do, acknowledges and embraces and encourages everything I do without interference or correction in my life. That is just not a real God. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible interjects himself in human history. He inserts himself in your life. He brings correction and admonishment, and he does what he does out of love for us because he wants to salvage and rescue and save us. Left to ourselves, we are miserable messes. And this is what we see happening in this story. Now, to address this first kind of, you know, incomplete idea who God is, we need to understand, for those of you who like to take notes, that God is just in his judgments. And we got to get rid of this idea that God is unjust and unfair, and that kind of a God is unloving. Look, let me tell you how ridiculous it would be illustrating it this way. If someone robbed a bank, robbed a bank, stole a bunch of money, and initially was not caught, went out, spent all that money on lavish living, then eventually was caught, arrested, 
never repented, never confessed to the crime, sentenced then by a judge. How ridiculous would it be that person to be hauled off in chains to prison saying, what an unloving judge that was. It's not, it's not an unloving judge. It's a just judge who is imposing the consequences for an unrepentant life of someone who has done wrong. So why do we impose this wrong definition on God that he's unloving just because he's just? He's just and loving. And God is just in this story. Let me show you how. Between verses 14 and 17 in this chapter, I want you to look at these four verses with me and take a look here. This is the long list of the charges against Israel. Verse 14, it says, But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Only four verses... And I just came up on my own looking at different phrases through those four verses with 14 indictments against Israel. 14. This is the list. This is all from just those four verses. I want you to notice in number two, they were stiff-necked. That, that is an expression related to oxen. Because in order for oxen to be harnessed with a yoke, they would have to bow the neck bow the head in submission. And sometimes oxen would stiffen up and stiffen their neck so that it was hard to harness them. That's a picture of Israel. They were stiff-necked people. They were rebellious against God. They would not bow in submission to Him. It also tells us, number five on the list, that they followed worthless gods. Interesting, verse 15 says that they followed worthless gods and themselves became worthless. And actually in Hebrew, it literally translates, they worshiped emptiness and became empty. That is the definition of a life today without the Lord. Because people will eventually find that the things that were temporarily satisfying are in fact empty, and if they continue to pursue and worship those things, they themselves will end up empty. That's what's happening here. Number 11 on the list is one of the most heinous things. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. Israel had gotten so bad in their idolatrous worship that they followed the practices of the foreign nations around them. And in the worship of Chemosh and Molech, they actually put their babies in fire. You look at this list here and you tell me, is God unjust or just? When this kind of thing is happening, God is just. He is just in his judgments. But number two, I want you to also see from this story that God is patient in his judgments. Okay, some people have this wrong view of God that he's quick to punish. God is just out to get us. He's quick to punish us. Not true. He's very patient. How patient is he? Let me ask you a question. If someone continually wronged you and they just did it over and over and over again, how long would you put up with that? How long would you put up with someone mistreating you and wronging you. A day, a day and a half, two max, maybe, right? How long would you go before you'd finally either say something or sever all ties with this person who is wronging you all the time? How long did God go before he brought this correction and judgment upon the nation of Israel? 
200 years. From the time the kingdom was divided after King Solomon until this moment here when Hashi is the last king of Israel, 200 years of that list of 14 was happening. God is patient. He gave him 200 years. The Bible says in Psalm 78, 38, Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. And what does the New Testament say in 2 Peter 3, 9? That he is patient with you and me, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. The reason, even fact, right now that God hasn't returned any sooner than he has, and he's coming again, but the reason why he's even delaying on a perfect divine timetable is so that as many people as possible might be saved. His patience is for our benefit. He is patient in this story 200 years before he finally says, Enough is enough. Lastly, number three, he warns us before bringing judgment. This is another common myth where people say, you know, I just don't, I don't know any better. So, you know, that's why. No, no, no. We, we are warned in advance. And every person is going to be accountable before the Lord. Three times in this story, it tells us how he warned the people. He warned them over and over again. Verse 13 says, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell them what he wanted. And what would happen if they didn't follow the ways of the Lord? Verse 15 says they rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. Verse 22 says the Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants, the prophets. So I want you to see that though this story is tragic in many levels, that this is a good reminder to us that God is just and He is patient and He forewarns us. And look, the reality is that in some ways, even this Bible study is a forewarning to some of you who are walking in rebellion against the Lord. He loves you. He is patient with you. But there is a point when His patience is exhausted and His warnings have warned enough. And then there's going to be a day that we all have to stand accountable before Him. And none of us is going to be able to stand blameless before him, but with one exception, that we come to him because of our faith in Jesus Christ who took on the punishment intended for us. That is the only way that we can stand before the Lord. You see, because the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that judgment. But the rest of that verse, it's, it's in Hebrews chapter 9, 37 and 38, it says, but so also Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. So Jesus Christ dies on a cross, assumes the punishment and judgment intended for us because of our sin. And now what God says is, if you'll trust in what my son Jesus has done for you by dying on a cross, you can pass from death to life. There is therefore now no condemnation for you to them that are in Christ Jesus. And your judgment then is placed on Christ so that one day when you die, you just simply go to heaven and are welcomed with open arms by the Father who loves us, who is the righteous judge of all the earth, because the judgment intended for us and the punishment intended for us was placed on Jesus Christ. I invite you to receive him as your Savior. Because if you don't know him, then friends, listen. This is not one of these, you know, scare tactic things. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you stand in danger of judgment. If you know Christ as your Savior, he has taken the judgment for you so that you can be clean and forgiven 
and enter your eternal reward when you die. We're glad you joined us today as we follow Israel's tumultuous history in the book of 2 Kings. We continue to discover important passages such as Elijah passing on the mantle of prophecy and leadership to Elisha and see God continue mighty works through his prophet. Great and wondrous signs were done in this time, and yet the kings of Israel and Judah did not do right in the eyes of the Lord. Their disobedience has resulted in invasion, defeat, and exile. Even there, God showed up, remaining faithful to His people and not allowing them to be completely destroyed. We love walking through the story of God's people with you and would love to connect with you even more. We meet together every Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. But if you can't join us there, feel free to sign up for our podcast or download our mobile app. You'll find links to both of these online at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also find additional resources to help you in your own study of the Word, as well as more information about Cornerstone Connection. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you tune in again as Pastor Gary continues to teach through 2 Kings on the next edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not a Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.